This episode is supported by Panacea Financial, digital banking built for doctors by doctors. At Panacea Financial, you can have your own free personal banker and a support team that works around the clock just like you do. Open your free checking account today at panaceafinancial.com. Panacea Financial, a division of Sonobank, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul. I love the clapping there. <laughs> it really, it gets it high energy just for the rest of the show. Look out, listeners. Welcome back. This is The Curbsiders. Tonight is a hotcake show. We have three recent articles that we think are really interesting, which we're going to tell you about. We have the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra here with us, who Paul will throw it to in a second to tell you about the articles we'll be discussing. But first, I want to remind you that you can get free CME credit for this episode through our CME partner, VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Paul, can you tell the audience, what, what do we do with, on this show? And if you want to throw in the meaning of life, that would be great. I, I feel like we covered this before. Uh, it is 42 and will be always now and forever. And we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. Ordinarily, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. But of course... With Hotcakes episodes, there's only one expert here, uh, and that would be the amazing Rahul Ganatra, who talks us through the statistics that previously we had just sort of skipped over and hope no one would call us on. So Rahul, now that we have your expertise and we are grateful for it, do you want to tell us about what articles we're reviewing tonight? Of course. And Paul, I'll just add that I also get called on those statistical issues all the time. It just happens on Twitter, so you don't really (laughs) hear about it on air. Um, So today we have three exciting articles to talk about. The first one we're going to be discussing is the Step 1 trial, kind of a uh, trauma-evoking name for many of us. But this was a Phase 3 trial of uh, the GLP-1 agonist semaglutide for weight loss. The results of this trial were kind of exciting. Um, We're also going to be discussing a cohort study from the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, looking at the comparative effectiveness of two antibiotic regimens for outpatient diverticulitis. And finally, we'll talk about a prospective cohort study in the journal Anesthesia that sheds light on what is the optimum delay for surgery after patients have experienced a diagnosis of COVID-19. So really exciting articles to discuss today. We also have a guest tonight, another chief resident from our friends at VCU. This is Adnan Khan. He is best described as overly enthusiastic about medicine, and he is a chief resident of quality and patient safety at VCU Health, where he spends his free time pestering residents into incorporating wild physiology experiment figures into morning reports. He will be going on to a pulmonary and critical care fellowship and hopes to remain in academics as a clinician educator While developing a niche in implementation science in the ICU, he is obsessed with biking, hiking, and food. Adnan, thank you for joining us, and we're going to have you tell us about an article in a second, but give the audience a pick of the week. It's your first time on the show. You got to give a pick of the week. Yeah, I'm super excited. This is amazing. Uh, My pick of the week, I don't know if anyone's brought it up on the show before, um, is this uh, series on Netflix called Dark. 
it is uh, German and you have to watch it in the original German with subtitles on. It's just fantastic. Cinematography is amazing. The writing is amazing. There are like no plot holes. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much. I just want you guys to go and watch it. You probably have to. It's not something you can have on in the background. Like you have to pay attention or you get you'll get lost very quickly. <laughs> it helps to watch it with someone else. So both of you can kind of bounce off ideas off each other and pause and go back and be given permission to say that's okay. Let's go back and see what actually happened. So I recommend. Yeah. But bef- before I commit to a um, German subtitled series that I absolutely have to pay attention <laughs> to, can you, can you give me just give me like a, a one sentence summary of what I might actually be getting into before um, my wife plans for divorce? <laughs> so it's uh, essentially a sci-fi thriller about time travel and the apocalypse. How about All right. That? Okay. See, yeah. there you go. Now, now, that sounds less grueling than just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. I yeah. I believe somebody recommended this on the show and I I don't want to insult the guest but I I can't remember who it was but it was someone cool, very cool uh that <laughs> that recommended it. Before we get on to the main the main article here which Adnan is going to present, I just wanted to point out to the audience this is I guess you could say the news portion of the show, the American College of Gastroenterology updated their their guideline on colorectal cancer screening. And one of the highlights from that was that they they did put in, though it was based on very low quality evidence, that colorectal cancer screening in average risk individuals can begin at age 45 to 49 and looking to reduce just like the incidence of advanced adenoma and mortality from colorectal cancer. And still the preferred screening test is either colonoscopy or a FIT test. So that's that's a bit exciting and definitely a change. And we we have in the works a show where we're going to hopefully be covering the upcoming USPSTF change, which is, I believe, still in draft. I don't think they've formally announced that yet. The other one is the, the USPSTF did update or expand their lung cancer screening guidelines. So instead of starting at age 55, it now starts at age 50. So between ages 50 and 80, if they have at least 20 pack year smoking history and they have quit within 15 years then you can then you can screen those people so it definitely expands that the pool of people that you might need to be doing paul have you started to put these into place yet not yet i mean they're they're hugely practice changing we're actually talking about them sort of within our section at, at cash like as to things like radiation exposure and, and patient convenience and so, right. so we've already started the conversation about them yeah, and I I started I think I referred my first like forty eight year old patient for colonoscopy. I I talked to one of my friends who's a gastroenterologist and said he uh, they they haven't seen them being uh, like you know denied by insurance to pay for them. So we'll see. But I I think that's going to be just within the next year. I think it's going to be standard practice, um, especially with two major organizations lowering the the age. Yeah, well, and, and the USPSTF, they're not sleeping because you saw the draft recommendation. They're lowering the age for screening for diabetes and overweight and obese patients. Or at least I should say this is a draft recommendation, but they're lowering the age to 35, which is also... Which was also... Yeah, that was starting at 40. And so yeah. now it's... A, yeah. So they just don't sleep. They are... They've had a, a big, big couple of couple years here. I like it. They and, and they're all volunteers, Paul. Bless these people. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you, USPSTF. <laughs> yeah, one thing I learned from the USPSTF episode you guys had recently was I previously thought they always took like the cost benefit analysis into account, but they don't include cost whatsoever, actually. No, yeah, just yeah. I, I had no idea either. It's just, you know, benefits greater than harms and, and that's what they do. So uh, it, it is, 
Yeah, there's so much to learn about that. We will be doing more episodes on updating guidelines. Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the financial remedy for doctors created by doctors with nationwide digital banking. Panacea Financial provides physicians and medical students with free checking, a personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and loans designed with you in mind. No one should borrow more than they need, but with Panacea Financial, physicians and physicians in training can get money as needed in as little as 24 hours with their PRN personal loan. It has an interest rate that is less than half of the average credit card, no co-signer requirement, and a fully digital application. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, or even home renovations. In addition, physicians in training can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. Go to panaceafinancial.com today to learn more. That's panaceafinancial.com to learn more. Panacea Financial, a division of Sonobank, member FDIC. Adnan, can you tell us about this first article we're going to cover here, the semaglutide article? Yeah, I would love to. So um, it's one of many step trials, but essentially this one was to evaluate the efficacy of semaglutide versus placebo in patients without diabetes who are overweight in conjunction with uh, some lifestyle modifications. So patients were randomized in a two-to-one fashion. The lifestyle modification was essentially a negative 500 kilocalorie diet daily and about 150 minutes of exercise that included walking. So not anything too insane. The results were impressive. They didn't have too much of a dropout issue. The difference in weight change, so they had co-primary endpoints. The main one was weight change and then also percentage of patients who lost greater than 5% of their body weight. Uh, the difference between semaglutide and placebo at the end was 12.44%. And the percentage of patients who lost greater than 5% of their body weight was something like 86%. Yeah. And the odds ratio was 11.2. So really impressive results, especially compared to other studies where they're looking at weight loss drugs, where generally the effect's only like 4% or some difference than placebo. So Yeah. I thought that the results of this were really impressive because yeah, 86% of people lost more than 5%, but like 69% lost more than 10% of their weight and almost half the people lost more than 15% of their body weight, which is really, I mean, metabolically, as long as you lose at least 5%, you maybe get something, Right. 10%, you definitely get something and 15%, like the more, the better. Yeah. So this, this was really, I mean, these are, you know, great numbers. Yeah. And you know, those were secondary endpoints, but they did use hierarchical testing. So I think they should be believed. There's a 20% one, which was kind of an exploratory second endpoint, which also like they had like 30% of patients reach that, which they said was approximating actual gastric bypass surgery uh, effect. So yeah. just incredibly impressive with that. I And I think, this, um, yeah, Paul, do oh. you see people clinically lose this much weight on these agents? I mean, this is like 30 pounds, uh, I think was like their average loss in the semaglutide group. I know is, is the short answer. I'm not sure what your experience has been. Some, it's usually some degree of weight loss, but nothing quite so impressive as all this. Are you guys prescribing so what has this? your experience been? Are you guys prescribing this like, you know, for weight loss itself in patients without diabetes or I know liraglutide was approved, but I don't know about this specific like formulation. I don't know. I don't know that any of them were FDA approved for weight loss alone. And I, I feel like that's what this trial was leaning towards. 
because yep. uh, I, I've only seen this in patients on with diabetes. Uh, well, I guess liraglutide, mm-hmm. it was. I, I know that one was approved for weight loss, but right. I don't think any of the others were. But I think right. a lot of people, if you're treating diabetes, just practically speaking, you say, well, look, you you have diabetes, met, you're on metformin and lifestyle changes, but we're not doing well. Let's add this agent, which might help you lose some weight. And I'm just using whatever's on formulary, which uh, it, it varies based on where you are. So Rahul, this was a positive trial. So can you remind the audience, like, how do you think about when you see a positive trial, you know, we have to be skeptical of things, right? So what do we, what do we have to need to tell, ask ourselves? Yes, absolutely. Reasonable skepticism while avoiding critical appraisal nihilism. That sums up <laughs> the, the entire objective. So what I usually do when I'm appraising a positive trial is I'm looking for sources of a type one error, things that could make this a false positive finding. And that could be either chance or bias. And there's, you know, kind of an infinite list of things to go through. So the 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 usual thing that I start with is by looking at the protocol. If the primary outcome is the same uh, in the paper as what was originally specified, that's one way you have of kind of comforting yourself that the primary outcome was not changed as a result of any interim analyses. Now, that's not to cast any aspersion, you know, on the trialists at all. It's just an important thing that, you know, we as readers and consumers of the medical literature should be comfortable with doing. And if you do identify changes to the protocol, just looking for an explanation why that change was made. And very often authors will uh, clarify in the manuscript why uh, a protocol uh, amendment or change was made. And fortunately, in this study, uh, the primary outcome uh, in the paper was the same as the primary outcome that was initially specified. Yeah, I think we had covered one previous trial where they they changed the primary outcome several times, but we talked about that. We felt it was it was warranted. Rahul, you had mentioned earlier that this two to one randomization. Why do they do that? Is that a good practice? So that's a really good question. Why do anything other than the sort of standard one to one? I admit this is kind of hard for me to just anticipate and think about why this would be better. So I had to do a little digging to understand this. So as you can imagine, having patients randomized in a one-to-one ratio is kind of the most statistically efficient way uh, to conduct a randomized trial. So you need to have a good reason to deviate from that. One reason why trialists sometimes deviate from the one-to-one is that it may make recruitment easier if the treatment is perceived to be beneficial. Now, it really shouldn't be perceived to be beneficial because if we're doing a randomized trial, there should be clinical equipoise about whether or not it helps. So that's probably not the main reason. Another reason is cost. Um, If the placebo arm is cheaper, then it may be more inexpensive to do the trial if you uh, randomize more people to the placebo group. I I don't see that done very commonly. If you expect that there's going to be a lot of dropout in one arm, that's another reason to randomize in a a higher ratio than one-to-one so that you can sort of account for that. But I think one of the most um, useful observations about randomization ratios other than two, uh, excuse me, other than one-to-one is something we've talked about on the show before, and that's that most phase three trials are thought to be underpowered to detect adverse events from a study drug, particularly if the study uses a run-in period uh, in the beginning, right? Because people yeah. who can't tolerate the drug are going are gonna to drop out. But if you have a, a trial like this one where more people are getting the study drug, that's going to increase the number of adverse events that you will see in the trial. 
So that is um, another potential benefit of uh, of allocating more people to the study drug is that you're going to hopefully capture more adverse events that way. Adnan, in this study, what were the main adverse events that they saw? And because, like, usually with you, usually think of like uh, GI upset because they're it slows gastric emptying, and then I know people are worried about like pancreatitis, and I think they actually excluded patients who had prior pancreatitis. What did they find in the as the adverse events? Were they common? Right. Um, adverse events weren't uh, incredibly common. I think for the uh, semaglutide group, it was about 9%. And then for the reported adverse events for the placebo group, it was only around 6%, something like that. So not a huge difference. But the GI-related side effects that were reported or caused drug discontinuation were significantly higher for semaglutide, as we would expect. The ones that you know they were mainly concerned about, so you've identified most of them. So pancreatitis, uh, they did exclude anyone who had a recent uh, bout of pancreatitis. And I think they made it around three or four months that you couldn't have had pancreatitis. And then three patients actually went on to develop pancreatitis anyway, but they all reportedly were mild. The other ones are gallbladder issues. Uh, so cholelithiasis, that was a small amount in actually both groups. I think some of it is just due to weight loss, you are at increased risk. Then other ones, so they're marked, they were measuring your calcitonin levels in your blood just to make sure. I know there was some concern about malignancy being associated with these drugs with that. So there was an exclusion that you couldn't have had abnormal levels coming into the study, but then they were monitoring them as well. They reported that they didn't find any sort of malignancies during the study. There was one death in the semaglutide group, and they didn't really make mention of, you know, if it was associated with the drug, they didn't think so. It was just kind of uh, one thing they added on at the end there. So overall, pretty well tolerated. If you compare it to the liraglutide study, I think that one's called SCALE. They had it was similar amounts of events. Uh, semaglutide looked apparently a little more tolerable. One thing that kind of made this study novel, since we already have a drug that's a GLP one uh, for weight loss, was the dosing formulation. So this is once weekly as opposed to daily. So there's some theory about you know just uptake with patients and that sort of thing, and their dropout rates of taking the drug were lower. So that was correct. Yeah, and they they started this because I haven't used this. I was interested in how you might prescribe this and right. what they they did was they start them at like 0.25 milligrams. And then over the course of 16 weeks, they wanted to get them up to the 2.4 milligrams per day target dose. Right. So it might take them like 10 weeks to get up to that. Um, if, if you just go weekly by the 0.25, like I think they were suggesting mm -hmm. um, in the in the protocol. So yeah. this was an exciting trial. Uh, it, it's they, they mentioned, I think we probably have to start to move on. So we'll probably have to get your final take homes and your hotcakes rating. But there's a cardiovascular outcomes trial that they kind of teased in this. Right. And we were saying ahead of time that there was some blood pressure lowering effect, which you and Paul pointed out might have just been due to the weight loss alone because they, they lost so much weight. So I'm not sure, I guess it's inconclusive if semaglutide uh, lowers blood pressure or not. Adnan, can you give us, uh, I know you're, I know you tell me you're a fan of the show and you know the hotcakes rating scale. So what how many hotcakes are you giving this? Full stack? Uh, you know, I really struggle with this, and I was wondering, you know, maybe I'm on a GLP-1 and my appetite's not as high, but I, so I'm <laughs> going to give it a four or, you know, I guess by the USPSTF scale, a B. The main reason for that is, I mean, this is a really well-conducted study. I don't have many qualms about that, but I'm trying to picture, you know, clinical significance for my patients. They did show for, you know, patients to lose greater than 10%, which is what I more associate with the clinical significance, like, you know, in NAFLD or other sort of diseases, that's a recommendation for weight loss. You know, a large proportion of patients did lose that weight, but it wasn't the primary outcome. 
The second thing I was looking for was just, you know, the time length that this weight loss persisted for. They do have another trial where they're specifically looking at that. But because in absence of those two things, I'm not 100% sold, but I still would recommend it. I just, you know, there's some drugs where you're like, we should put this in the water. I don't think we've reached that level just yet. I think that's a fantastic answer. I, I, I like your reasoning. So let's move on to our next trial, which the great Dr. Paul Williams will be telling us about. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So I'm, I, I picked this trial because I had this bizarre run of diverticulitis cases in my own outpatient practice. And so selfishly, I just I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. Turns out, no, <laughs> um, as per usual. So this is, I, I chose an article by Gaber, uh, Kinlaw, Edwards, et al. in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine. This is the Comparative Effectiveness and Harms for Antibiotics for Outpatient Diverticulitis, two nationwide cohort studies. And the question they're asking is, what are what is the comparative effectiveness and comparative harms of metronidazole plus a fluoroquinolone versus amoxicillin clavulinate in treating outpatient diverticulitis? So a very specific question, but very germane to, to outpatient practice. And the way... The design was, it was interesting to me. I just, I'd not heard this term used before. This is an active comparison, new user retrospective cohort study, or as the epidemiology folks like to say, an ACNU. Um, <laughs> oh, well, you can tell me if I'm making that up or not. That's that's legit. Okay, great. See, I did, I did a little bit of homework. That's as much as I've done. I don't know anything else about them. But basically, and, and, I, and I do want to ask Rahul about, about this type of study and sort of what it gains us. But before I do, I'll just kind of give you the overview of, of what they looked at and how they did it. Basically, this was done via data mining of two large data sets. They looked at the IBM Market Scan Commercial Claims and Encounters Database, otherwise known as IBM Watson Health, otherwise known as Skynet. <laughs> and they looked at longitudinal data on a cohort of patients enrolled in private employer-sponsored insurance from 2000 to 2018. And a big old number of patients. This is 119,521 patients they looked at. And then they also looked at a 20% random sample of Medicare claims with longitudinal data, um, and the beneficiaries had to be over the age of 65, obviously, or have disability or end-stage renal disease to qualify for Medicare, ranging from 2007 to 2015. And this was a, a data set that included over 20,000 patients. And all these patients had to have insurance so they could actually do the appropriate data mining in the year prior or 14 days after the diagnosis. And they also excluded patients who had diverticulitis-related diagnoses codes in the past year um, or claims or codes associated with immunosuppression. And I guess I'll stop there. So they're looking at these two different data sets of these two different groups, and they basically, what they did was looked at antibiotic fills after a diagnosis of diverticulitis was kind of abstracted from the record, and then waited 14 days, and then looked to see at, for outcomes. And the outcomes they were interested in were inpatient admission for diverticulitis, need for urgent surgery, C. diff infection, um, or also elective surgery within three years of diagnosis. And I, and I guess I'll, I'll sort of start there and ask Rahul if I missed anything in terms of the design, if you could talk a little bit about this, this ACNU and what is what it's gaining us? Yeah, I love this term. We we have to somehow find a way to attribute this to to you, Paul Williams, twenty twenty one. I'm gonna make you an acne T shirt, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. No. The the only things that I will say about that is um one thing that you you pointed out in the description of the design is that this was a retrospective cohort study. And so this was not a randomized trial in the way that we're used to thinking about assessing the effect of medications. Um, but the authors did incorporate some features to try to emulate a randomized controlled trial. And that's what's meant by the new user in the active comparator design. So I'll try to unpack that just a little bit. And I will say I am by no means an expert in the design of uh, observational studies uh, for pharmacoepidemiology. There's many more people who are more qualified than I am to talk about this. 
But with a sort of layperson's understanding in mind, what the active comparator part means is that rather than comparing either of these medications to placebo, we're comparing treatment A to treatment B. And so this allows us to make concluding statements like this drug is X percent better than this other drug with regard to some outcome that we care about. In this case, it was uh, 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 diverticulitis-related complications. What it doesn't allow us to conclude is this drug is X percent effective at treating disease, okay? Because to determine, to make a statement about how effective something is, we have to, you know, compare that to the alternative, which in most cases is placebo. So that's what's meant by the sort of active comparator. It's comparing, in this case, uh, metronidazole with the fluoroquinolone versus amoxicillin clavulanic acid. Now, the new user design, I, I understand slightly less well. And basically what they tell us in the paper is that they excluded patients who had filled a prescription for either of the two study drugs uh, within, I think, the preceding six months before this. And there's a couple of reasons to do this. You know, somebody who has been on, the, the theory being that somebody who has been on one of the study drugs before may be different than a patient who has started on one of these study drugs for the first time. Okay, and as a way to try to exclude that heterogeneity from the the study population, if we limit the study population to people who are newly prescribed a medication, that's the theory with that. And um, I would welcome any listeners uh, um, writing in or tweeting at me with a a more nuanced understanding of that, because that's something I've kind of struggled with for a long time. And I would love to improve my understanding of that. They Um, They probably just didn't want somebody that had like you know, a group of patients that were having these recurrent flares of diverticulitis in a short period of time. And that's probably not the patient you're looking for. Maybe that was what that was about. Well, that that's definitely the case in this paper, Matt. Yeah. Because they had excluded patients who had ever had diverticulitis before. Yeah. And using administrative data, you know, some people are going to slip through the cracks. They're, we're not going to know about everybody who's had diverticulitis. But that that is one uh, feature of the design of this study that is in line with uh, the new user design. Yeah, so uh, my take-home point from this study, I mean, it was it basically looked at like a younger group of people who had private insurance and an older group of people who had Medicare. They were over 65, and they really didn't see a big difference in harms or treatment failure with uh, the fluoroquinolone-based regimens versus the amoxclav. And amoxclav is presumably a bit safer and... Uh, just like a little bit of a simpler regimen. And I guess the idea was maybe it has lower risk of side effects because as I was talking to you guys about earlier, and it was like July, 2016, the FDA had this black box warning on fluoroquinolones. And they basically said, you really shouldn't use this for simple infections like acute sinusitis, acute cystitis that's uncomplicated, or like an acute on chronic exacerbation of like chronic bronchitis. Because Paul, when we were practicing as like interns, we were giving out fluoroquinolones just to everybody, right? Oh, with with wild abandon. And before I let you present the results of my paper, which you which you mostly alluded to, um, I so exactly right. So the big takeaway results. So you mentioned this. They actually looked at this in the paper in terms of actual practice usage of the metronidazole fluoroquinolone versus the amoxiclav. And even after that black box warning came out, there was still a huge difference between the two. So even the paper makes the point like you don't see a huge drop off after the black box warning. So we were still using particularly metronidazole fluoroquinolone um, combination. Actually, they mentioned the paper was used 89% of the time in the market scan cohort versus um, 87% of the time in the Medicare cohort. So used way, way more for no real compelling reason, even after that black box warning came out. 
And the, the punchline being is that for the most part, there didn't seem to be huge differences in either cohort in terms of need for acute hospitalizations, need for even elective surgery, or need for urgent surgery. But the one difference that they actually thought was noteworthy is that the risk of uh, C. diff-associated infection was higher in the metronidazole fluoroquinolone group in this older Medicare population compared to amoxiclav. So 1.2% compared to 0.6%. Now that's a confidence interval of like 0.2 to 1. And they calculate a number needed to treat to harm calculated as 167. So you would have to treat, if I understand this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Rahul, 167 patients with metronidazole and a fluoroquinolone rather than amoxiclav to cause one case of C. diff-associated infection. Am I understanding that number correctly? Yes. And the only thing I will add is that that refers to the period of one year. So uh, it is 167 patients treated with uh, fluoroquinolone metronidazole, as you said, over one year to have one additional C. diff infection. Great. Thank you. Exactly. Adnan, we were talking about Paul and I uh, becoming the the we're becoming we're solidly mid career now. Paul, is that right? Maybe feels like it. <laughs> I don't. I still consider myself early career. <laughs> okay, we're still we're late <laughs> early career. Uh, <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, Adnan, you're you're finishing up your training. You're a chief resident, uh, or you finished your training. You're now a chief resident. The fluoroquinolone use, is this something that you were counseled about like during training, like watch out for these things? Or are you still seeing people use them um, a ton? It's it's definitely decreased a good amount. Um, you know, everyone is very aware of the black box warning and also the effects just on resistance patterns, uh, especially with ciprofloxacin. So that was yeah. more the argument against using it, especially for like UTIs and things like that. Um, but they still mm -hmm. are being used because there's still some suspicion about, you know, just the sheer rates of some of these complications, especially the more serious ones. I think like, you know, the aortic complications, that sort of thing. But yeah, they're reported and it's a black box warning, but we're kind of used to that with other medications where you don't really see it that often. So it's kind of a, sure. if we can avoid it, we will, but it's not an absolute sort of thing that you're avoiding. Yeah. I think what we were, what, what Paul and I were talking about is just like someone had a simple UTI, they're just like, give them Cipro and Cipro, that's, 100%. you know, no longer, yeah. no longer the case. So Paul, I, I think we're at a point here. Did you want to give a hotcakes rating? I, I mean, never. Um, but I mean, there, as, as we become less arbitrary, I become more excited about it. So this is, this is getting a half stack or a, a B rating for me. Because I, I think it is practice changing. I think it answers an important question. I feel better about prescribing a moxclav because it seems to be safer, particularly in the population that tends to get diverticulitis. And I really, like, I know that we get sort of hung up on randomized control trials as being just the absolute um, pinnacle of, of research. But like, I think how thoughtful and well-designed this felt almost like an archaeology dig where they're actually, the way they sort of put pieces together to actually create the picture that you need to see to, to examine the evidence, I thought was really kind of interesting and compelling. So I, it has the limits of chart mining studies. You can't really get a sense of the clinical picture just by abstracting diagnoses. And also, I'd be interested to know everyone's thoughts. You know, everyone in this study was insured and had been insured for a full year. And I feel like that's a certain background protoplasm that might be different than a lot of the patients that I see. But I, I, even having said that, I don't know that would skew the way I would treat patients all that much differently. So I think it's, I think it's a good study that changes my practice. So I, it's getting a half stack for me. I totally agree with Paul on this one. And I love the way that you uh, couched it as, you know, we're used to thinking of randomized trials as being the, the gold standard for evidence. But th this is a good illustration of asking yourself, how good does the evidence need to be in order for me to make a decision not to use a fluoroquinolone? And in this study, we are seeing the absence of a signal for increased treatment failure with a viable alternative. So in my book, you know, you don't need a randomized trial to, to demonstrate that. 
Yeah. I guess my one reservation with the study, and I think Rahul, you just kind of addressed it was, uh, you know, I'm thinking of my practice with diverticulitis. I don't often prescribe antibiotics or I just feel like the diagnosis is kind of vague, like maybe based off some CT scan finding or something like that, you know? So they kind of went off what is put in the chart. And in my experience, it's not always necessarily accurate, but the argument against that is this is giant populations and it does reflect our current practice, even if the actual diagnosis may not be accurate and you're not seeing any real difference in any sort of benefit. So yeah, I guess I talked myself out of it <laughs> or Rahul did, I would say. <laughs> 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 no, it, it brings up an important point. Anytime you're worried about misclassification of the diagnosis, the next question you have to ask yourself is, do I have a reason to suspect that would be different between the two groups? And in this study, there was nothing that really raised my alarm for, for suspecting that misclassification would be different between the groups. So if anything, I would expect that to underestimate the, uh, the frequency of complications, but not any different between the two groups. Hey, everybody. You know that we love MixApp, and MixApp 19 is coming our way this summer with exciting new features and updates to help facilitate your learning. There's now 12 syllabus sections with a larger general internal medicine syllabus that will be published in two installments with parts A in August 2021 and part B in January 2022. And MixApp allows you to choose from three available formats that are perfect for blended learning where you can choose either MixApp digital only or you can get MixApp 19 complete that has both the print resources and the digital resources like virtual DX, digital flashcards, and more. I love using MixApp. I'm always learning things that I thought I knew and really didn't know. It is a great learning resource and I actually have fun studying for boards because of MixApp. So visit acponline.org forward slash MKSAP19 to reserve your MixApp19 program before August 31st, 2021 to receive a pre-release discount of 10% on MixApp19 Digital and Complete Green and 15% on MixApp19 Complete. That's acponline.org forward slash MKSAP19 and use the promo code CURB2021 at checkout. Let's move on. Uh, our final study, which I think will be a bit quicker to discuss, is uh, we have to thank our friend, Dr. Avital Glasser, our perioperative medicine expert at the Curbsiders, who uh, pointed this study out to us and suggested it. This was done by the COVID Surge Collaborative and funded by the National Institute of Health Research, their global research arm. And they were looking at the timing of surgery following SARS-CoV-2 infection, and this was like an international prospective cohort study. So what they basically did was they took this big cohort of patients who were getting surgery, a small percentage of those patients, about 2.2%, had a diagnosis of COVID-19, and then they looked at the timing of surgery in those patients and the perioperative outcomes. So the primary outcome they looked at was 30-day post-op mortality. And they found out that that remained elevated from zero to six weeks after a diagnosis of COVID. The odds ratio was three and a half to four. The post-op mortality was increased by three and a half to four. And uh, after seven weeks, that started to go down back towards what uh, a patient who did not have a COVID-19 diagnosis or SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis. And then pulmonary complications, 
they remained elevated throughout the period after a diagnosis, though they did start to trail off the further you got out from the diagnosis. So I think this is very, very interesting results. Paul, what did you see people doing um, with, with uh, patients who had co- uh, SARS, COVID-2, COVID-19? Yeah, I, it's, I'm not sure there was a specific protocol. I feel like just because everything's moving so much more slowly now in general, in terms of getting things done, probably realistically elective procedures are happening uh, at about the two-month time frame, regardless. I think there's no one in any kind of rush to get people back into things. So, but I don't know that's been protocolized. I think it's really helpful to actually have concrete data to sort of guide things with, or at least maybe not concrete, but good data to sort of guide things with. I actually, I wanted to ask um, Rahul, or actually just the entire group, I feel like we've all had patients, we've all had the surprise COVID diagnoses, right? Like right. patients yes. who were sort of tested, you're like, oh, by the way, you have COVID now, congratulations, you get that diagnosis. So I, I just, I wonder like how the presence of that type of patient might change the results of this. Like were they accounted for in the study and how might that actually skew the results one way or the other? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, as I read through this study and tried to decide what my opinion was on that, uh, I uh, got a little excited because this paper actually provides kind of a great example of differential misclassification. And what I mean by that is a patient assigned to the wrong treatment group, but only in one direction. And, you know, we know that there are so many patients who were uh, asymptomatic from COVID-19, the sort of surprise diagnosis that you mentioned. So we can be assured that there were many patients who had COVID-19 who just never came to clinical attention because they never got tested. So in this study, those patients would be very likely to be classified as not having had COVID. And in my opinion, it's unlikely that we would incorrectly classify people as having had COVID. Um, There are issues with um, antibody tests where you can get um, false positive results, particularly when the the pretest probability is not very high. But I think for the most part, this study is vulnerable to uh, differential misclassification bias by incorrectly classifying patients who had uh, COVID uh, in the non-COVID group. And if we are persuaded by the results, uh, which suggests that there is uh, an increase in 30-day perioperative mortality as a result of having COVID, and we see this nice dose-response relationship uh, um, with the relationship being strongest, closest to the diagnosis, then uh, that would lead us to expect that, if anything, this differential misclassification should bias towards the null. So this actually increases my confidence that, if anything, these results are probably an underestimate of the perioperative risk associated with COVID-19 and really makes me feel like this is something that should uh, change practice and, and give us pause to think about you know, when is really the safest time uh, to, to send patients for elective surgeries. And we don't know where, I know we all, we've all seen this, you, when you're sending someone for elective surgery, they may get a COVID diagnosis, you know, a positive swab, and you're like, this person had, had it a month ago. And so we don't, you don't really know clinically where these patients were at in this trial. So we, we may be underestimating how long you need to wait uh, before, right? Because if you, if you have someone has a positive swab and you think they're that's time zero, but really they had it a month ago. You're, and they still have a bad outcome with, you know, I think, I think you could, uh, be underestimating how long you need to wait. Two questions with that. Um, first one to Rahul's point, did the paper say like what percentage of patients were based off of PCR versus imaging versus, uh, I don't remember what the other one was clinical. Did it say like what percentage of patients it may have g- were but given I a don't... diagnosis? I couldn't find that. Yeah, I I didn't come across that either. It may, it may have been that may, buried in the appendix or the the supplement. 
Gotcha. So one thing I'll I'll say to that question is, you know, it, it's good to identify questions like this because this mm-hmm. helps you uh, decide what do you want to see in the sensitivity analyses. And the authors did do a sensitivity analysis where they restricted the study population to patients who had uh, a PCR-positive swab for COVID-19 to address exactly Matt's point to try to limit it to those people who are most likely to have had recent active infection. And we Mm -hmm. see that the same dose-response relationship held uh, in that uh, subpopulation as well. So, you know, for interest of time, uh, I would give my... My final take-home point for this would be that if you have a patient who's going for surgery and it's, I, I would try to wait at least seven weeks before sending them to surgery. And if they still have symptoms, you should really continue to hold off before sending them to surgery um, because those patients, even after seven weeks in this trial, still had worse outcomes. And then the second thing is that the pulmonary complications seem to continue beyond seven weeks. They they did start to, to to lessen, but I think you really need to have a heightened awareness for pulmonary complications. And uh, Dr. O'Glasser told me that um, she thinks this will be practice changing. She thinks that especially the anesthesia and surgical, her anesthesia and surgical colleagues are aware of this, you know, this paper and will be trying to really minimize harm by trying to like avoid the pulmonary complications. And of course, obviously. 30-day post-op mortality. So I would give this again, uh, I, I guess I would give this a B rating. I think, uh, y- you know, we should we should follow the, the results of this trial because it's the best evidence we have right now. And I think it will be practice changing. So I'd say this is easily a half stack of hotcakes. Maybe a pat of butter. Maybe a pat of, and a pat of butter, of course, of course. Rahul, before we get to the outro, did you have any uh, any other things that you thought were important that we needed to mention about these three trials we've discussed tonight? Yeah, I, I was really excited to uh, have us discuss a high-quality, well-designed, randomized controlled trial. And then in addition to that, we have two well-designed cohort studies. And it's always worth remembering why randomized trials are so important um, and why randomized trials are kind of the cornerstone of how we make decisions in clinical medicine. Uh, In situations where you can't do a randomized controlled trial, you have to ask yourself, are there things besides the treatment of interest that are different between the two groups? And in a paper that you presented, Matt, about the timing of surgery after COVID-19, we see in the paper that patients who got COVID-19 were more likely to be sicker and have more comorbidities in patients who didn't have COVID-19. And uh, Paul, in the paper you discussed on uh, patients treated for uh, diverticulitis as an outpatient, uh, there were some important differences between the two groups, like how often they uh, underwent abdominal imaging. Uh, which could be related to uh, how sick the patients were, differences in presentation. So both of these papers used uh, a really common and important to understand method called propensity matching. And you know you don't have to know the nuts and bolts of propensity matching, but what you do have to ask yourself is in any study that's not a randomized controlled trial, how are we attempting to ensure that the study populations are as comparable as possible? And propensity matching is a really common way to do that. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great, thank you. Oh, strong. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get those weekly show notes in your inbox. 
We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or you can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, all of us, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, and Chris the Chu Manchu is on Facebook. A reminder that you can get CME credit for this episode through our partnership with VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. I'm Adnan Khan. I've been Dr. Rahul Kanatra. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.